Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Hello, world. How are you? Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every week we pick a new book on Russia or Eurasia and talk to the author. This week, it's my pleasure to present you an interview with Claudia Verhoeven on her recent book, The Odd Man Karakozov, Imperial Russia, Modernity, and the Birth of Terrorism. On April 4th, 1866, around a quarter to four in the afternoon, a student named Dmitry Vladimirovich Karakozov pulled out a double-barrel flintlock pistol and shot at Tsar Alexander II as he stepped out of St. Petersburg's summer garden onto the boulevard. Karakozov missed, and his failure has led historians to relegate him to a mere historical footnote. That is, until now. Claudia Verhoeven examines Karakozov's failed assassination attempt to show how it gave birth to terrorism. There are many things to like about the odd man Karakozov, but what I like most is Claudia's use of microhistory to trace how a singular moment under particular historical conditions can inaugurate a phenomenon. So without further delay, here's our interview with Professor Verhoeven. Enjoy. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Sean. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Thank you for taking the time to talk about your book, The Odd Man Karakozov, Imperial Russia, Modernity, and the Birth of Terrorism. Um, to, big, to begin, uh, tell us a bit about yourself and why you chose to study the history of Imperial Russia and terrorism. Okay. Um... So how did I come to uh, Imperial Russia? I think through literature, which is not unusual for um, for historians of uh, Russia, and I think specifically of uh, Imperial Russia because of because the literary tradition is so strong. Um, so I, I, as early as I think age seventeen, I read um, Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground, and that that was a a, a book that um, really opened up the world of literature in a, in a, in a serious way for the first time to me. Um, and then in college at Berkeley, I took a course with Irina Paperno, who actually is in the uh, literature department there as well, or in the Slavic department, but she was teaching intellectual history courses in the history department. Now, I was actually a, a philosophy major at that time, um, but, be, but sort of becoming... Um, dissatisfied with philosophy, and I was beginning to veer towards history and did that through intellectual history. And she taught a fantastic course on um, um, the um, history, uh, on, on Russian intellectual history that focused on the 19th century. And I just, um, I just fell in love with the period, um, and specifically with the 1860s, which, um, as you know, is also what my book focuses on. Now, then I um, in graduate school, it actually took me a very long time to really commit to Russian history. I didn't do that until my fourth year. Um, and I think I finally, um, the moment when I decided that I would really uh, write a dissertation on uh, Russian history was, 
I think when I realized that what, what graduate school in academia is about is actually studying what you love, <laughs> <laughs> it simply had not occurred to me until that moment that I could write something and possibly write something new on a period um, about which there already are many great books that had, of course, inspired me to keep reading. So that, that's as far as the, the Russia part goes. And, and then terrorism, um, um, probably... Um, well, there are two, two, two answers to that. The first is that um, the um, history of the revolutionary movement and literature are very um, closely intertwined in the Russian tradition. So to sort of fall in love with the literature of the period, you know, by extension, you learn a lot about the revolutionary movement. And I found it um, incredibly interesting. Um, the other thing is that probably, but this was on a much more um, subconscious level, is that I think that the... Um, history of the revolutionary movement, especially in the 1860s and 1870, um, paralleled for me um, things that I was interested in in revolutionary slash social movement in the 1960s in, in Europe and America. So I think that, um, although I didn't really realize it until I was done writing the book, but I think that that helped me to become interested in revolutionary violence. Mm -hmm. And how did you come to write this book? I mean, as you say in in, in the introduction and throughout that uh, Karakozov's failed attempt on on Alexander to assassinate Alexander II is kind of a footnote in the the history of the revolutionary movement. So how did you come to you know write about essentially one act and then everything surrounding that act of violence? <laughs> well well, that was, in, in many ways, that was a happy accident um, that had to do um, with my um, naivete and inexperience. So when I, when I first went to Russia to do my research, I, I went there with a, with a pers dissertation perspectives, um, you know, that, that basically the plan was to write the entire history of Russian revolutionary terrorism <laughs> of the imperial period. So starting with Karakozov, about whom I really knew nothing, um, and then ending around World War One, uh, And um, so I sat down in, 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 in the archive and uh, things just were much more complicated than I thought they would be. So I had a really rough time reading the sources, first of all. Um, and um, um, I, I, I didn't have any in archival experience. Well, to make a long story stuck, short, I essentially got stuck on the first case. Um, a, because of difficulties, but, but B, more importantly, because I thought the case was so fascinating. And one of the reasons for this is because it was an unsolved case. Mm -hmm. Very, very rich archival deposit about a case that, that you know, in the end, it's, it's simply unclear whether this was an act of, 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 of an assassination committed by a singular and kind of peculiar individual, or rather whether, whether there was a, a much larger conspiracy um, involved. So, um, so I just, I, and, 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 and I think what supported me in continuing to look at just this one case was that I had fairly extensive training in um, micro history because um, UCLA, as, as you know, um, has a few very strong um, micro historians and, or, or historians of everyday life who were teaching there at the time, like David Sabian and Carlo Ginsburg. And I was, I had been trained, I think in, in doing very close, uh, readings. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, intellectually, it also made sense for me, um, 
to concentrate on this one case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the micro kind of approach is really prevalent throughout. I mean, you really, as you say in the end of the introduction, it's kind of concentric circles kind of going out and then back in, which is a really interesting organizing principle of, of your narrative. Um, so who, I think who, at the time, well, in fact, like it, it just became, I mean, when I was doing the research, it became so micro that I, I always called it nano history. <laughs> <laughs> um, I still think, I mean, it's, I mean, I do have a tendency towards um, myopia. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked out, it worked out quite well in this case, that's for sure. Um, um, so who was this character, Dmitry Karakozov, um, and what happened on April 4th, 1866? Okay, so Dmitry Karakozov was um, a, an ex-student um, in his mid-twenties, who um, already in his earlier twenties had begun to lean towards um, the, what was at that time, you know, the emerging um, revolutionary movement. Um, and... Um, he was part of a, a student circle in Moscow um, that um, was inspired by new uh, revolutionary ideas and revolutionary literature. For example, Chernyshevsky's um, novel, highly influential novel, What is to be Done from 1863. Um, and, um, and, and this uh, group of youth, so they were studying at the University of Moscow. They were um, organizing reading circles for, 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 for workers or peasants or, you know, trying to, in any case, none of this was especially successful. Um, and Karakozov, but Karakozov, you know, as, as the title implies, was a bit of a, an odd man out. Um, he um, was, had some um, uh, tendencies towards uh, hypochondria. Um, <laughs> and, um, and over the course of the, the year preceding um, April 4th, 1866, he began increasingly to withdraw from his student uh, circle and um, sort of set off on a path that eventually led him on April 4th, 1866, to try to assassinate Alexander II. So he um, traveled to Petersburg, he acquired um, a pistol, and uh, waited for Alexander II to uh, finish his regularly scheduled walk in the Summer Garden, which is adjacent to the Winter Palace um, in St. Petersburg. And then he, he, he shot at him, but he missed. Um, and the story of, 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 of the failure of the assassination is also really interesting. I don't know if we'll get into that. Um, but, um, but so that's Karakozov. He was the first person to try to assassinate the Russian Tsar. He stands at the, 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 the very beginning of the um, uh, sort of active, public, violent, revolutionary movement. And as I argue, he's also the person to inaugurate um, um, terrorism in the Russian tradition and because uh, Russia is usually seen to be the, um, the, uh, the place of the birthplace of terrorism. In a sense, I would argue that he stands at the very beginning of the tradition of, of terrorism. Yeah, but most historians have passed over him because that it's a failure. Um, so what kind of credence, why do you think the failure is such an important uh, point in the, in the birth of terrorism? Um, well, why, why the failure, um, you mean this particular, why this particular act? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, um, for two reasons. Um, one is that even though Karakozov failed to assassinate the czar, um, and as I show mostly in the first and second chapter of the book, that the way that the, the state and the juridical system and the public responded to this act and how they understood this act, that, that 
through the way they um, they talked about it, so in the courts, in the newspapers, in government of, um, uh, memoranda and so forth, very clear ideas about this political act of violence. I mean, ideas that we, that basically um, the idea of terrorism as we now understand, understand it emerged from this act, even though it failed. That is sort of the idea. So ideas about what a terrorist organization looks like, what the um, what 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 types of personalities join these kinds of organization? What the purpose is of political assassination, um, and um, how uh, um, um, what the relationship is between um, acts of political assassination and the ensuing revolution? So all these ideas already came out of this particular case. So that's one way. Of, of saying that th- this really is a crucial case to look at. The other thing is, is that I think in the um, in terrorism studies or in the in the history in the literature on the history of terrorism, there is a real tendency to differentiate between um, uh, singular assassins on the one hand and then systematic sort of terrorist organizations, right? And there's a there's a tendency to say, okay, if it's a singular assassin, and especially if you know there's something pathological going on with this particular assassin, then we cannot really um, consider it a, a, a truly political figure or a truly political act, right? And I think that, I, well, first of all, I think that that's um, an incorrect way of looking at it, right? I think that the the connection between the political and the pathological is much more complicated than the literature allows, and I think that this case, the Karakozov case, um, um, uh, sort of problematizes that, that, that I think, too uh, facile binary that exists in the literature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now let's get move on to some of those kind of particular images or thoughts and ideas that kind of explode out of this very singular moment and really color the contemporary uh, the contemporaries in Russia, but also the way we understand terrorism as such. Um, so first off, what kind of image of the revolutionary emerged as a result of April 4th? And, and describe this image that came out of the discourses of, say, government reports and media, okay. et cetera. Okay. So, well, the tricky... Th- so basically what came out of this, and I'll, I'll just give some background. The idea of the conspiracy that was formed at that time. So uh, you, you remember I mentioned that Karakozov was part of a student circle in Moscow. Um, so the, the, the final picture of what, uh, um, what had led to the assassination as uh, promoted by the government and the courts was this, that Karakozov was a member of... of um, of a socialist student circle called the organization or, or simply organization. Uh, this was a rather extensive circle, but at the center of this circle, there was a more secret circle called hell. And um, there were about eight to 10 members of this organization and they were all um, to be, if called upon, um, suicide assassins, right? So we do have here the, the sort of also the origin of the idea of systematic suicide terrorism, um, and these were to, if they were elected to commit a, um, a political assassination, they were to sever all ties with their their comrades, and sort of go undercover, um, and then commit this act of uh, uh, suicide terrorism. Now the idea was ultimately that there would be cells like hell in Moscow, all over Europe, 
right? So that 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 and they were they were in the process of making connections with groups in Petersburg and in Switzerland and so forth, so that there would be essentially a whole network of um, uh, these kind of uh, small. Um, uh, vanguard organizations that through political assassination would trigger um, revolutionary upheavals across the continent but of course first and foremost in Russia and the image and the image that comes out I mean what oh, is yeah. the, the image of the revolutionary well the image of the revolutionary that comes out of that is one that, that I think is essentially still with us today is the same for the imperial period as it is for the Soviet period probably right this is a this is a a man, mostly a man, although also women, who is singular, like, singularly devoted to the cause, utilitarian in, 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 in his logic, right? So has a, has, a, has a very cold, calculating, and oftentimes said to be cruel means and logic that animates um, um, his, um, his activism. In this famous novel I mentioned a little while, so this is Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done, there is a particular character named Rachmetov who is um, uh, sketched out as a kind of exemplary revolutionary conspirator. Now, this particular character has as his nickname the rigorist, right? This is a man who gives up everything for the revolution. He only eats a very restricted diet. He does not uh, allow himself to fall in love with anybody. He's given up all material comforts to the extent that he sleeps on, you know, a piece of felt. And everything, his entire livelihood is devoted towards uh, the revolution, right? Now, this, 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 I mean, you can imagine, I mean, to many way, to many people, this is a, a completely unattractive character, right? It's the same kind of character that, um, it's, it's the same kind of, idea that people have, I think, of Lenin, right? So somebody who, who does not um, uh, uh, hesitate to commit acts of cruelty in order to achieve the final revolutionary goal, right? So this is, this, and this, this, this particular image is precisely the image that comes out of the Karakozov case, right? But it's very important to remember that this is actually something that was at least in part constructed by the government and by the courts and by the media, right? When in fact, I would say that underneath of that, in the actual revolutionary movement, there are, you know, there's obviously there are very different types of revolutionaries uh, running around who, um, and with particular characteristics that are extremely important to the revolutionary movement, that but tend to be... Um, um, uh, covered over by more conservative readings of the revolutionary. Mm -hmm. So okay. I hope that makes sense. No, it certainly does. It certainly okay. does. Um, another thing too about this this act by Karakhozov, um, it reverberates throughout Russian society and culture. I mean, you mentioned this briefly already, but one reverberation that you focus on is on Dostoevsky's crime and punishment. Mm -hmm. um, how does Karakhozov's act relate to Dostoevsky's novel? Okay, well, it, I would say that, first of all, it relates to the novel in very complicated ways and in, in multiple ways, but the most um, straightforward um, is this, is um, Dostoevsky started writing um, Crime and Punishment in 1865 um, by early, and it was published in serial form, right, as novels uh, were at the time. So the first few chapters had already been published in early 1866, so prior to... Um, Karakozov's um, attempted assassination. 
Now, what happens in 1866, and we have um, um, uh, evidence of this from 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 letters, um, is that Dostoevsky is in the midst of writing a very crucial chapter or very very crucial part of Crime and Punishment, um, where he 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 he's discussing. Um, uh, what has come to be known as as the Napoleonic theory of of crime and punishment, right? The idea that there are certain extraordinary individuals uh, who are sort of um, uh, entitled um, to uh, step over the uh, bounds of um, good and evil, right? For the sake of a great idea. So, um, so in in the midst of writing this book, uh, Dostoevsky's at home and he hears of the attempted assassination. And this triggers in him, I mean, you know, Dostoevsky was an epileptic. It, it triggers, I mean, he, he, he nearly falls into convulsions. And, um, you know, we don't know if he really had an epileptic fit, but in any case, he was really plowed over by this event and runs out into the street, tries to find out the, what, what news of the assassination and so forth. Um, and then he falls ill, and then there's a delay in the, writing of publica- of the, uh, in the writing and publication of Crime and Punishment. And so part of the argument of my book is that it's this event that sort of finds its way into the novel and alters um, Raskolnikov's motive um, 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 into uh, um, or and uh, uh, yeah, sort of finds its way into the novel as the Napoleonic theory. Well, that's set too short. But in any case, there, that's one way of thinking about it. That Karakozov's act interrupted the writing of Crime and Punishment and alters the novel. But of course, we have to be careful here because uh, uh, Dostoevsky himself um, was an ex-conspirator, right? Who had been um, con- nearly condemned to death, or he was condemned to death, but he was pardoned at the last moment, and he he himself had been part of a conspiracy. So I don't mean to suggest that that um, uh, Dostoevsky had never thought about um, uh, political conspiracy, but I do think there's something about the um, the 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 uh, this attempted assassination that 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 affected him in a very real way. And if you look at the later publications of Dostoevsky, you will see that this the political motif. Uh, 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 or the revolutionary movement keeps coming back into his later novels, right? Whether it's the Nechayev case in The Possessed, or if you think about the brothers Karamazov, like I don't think it's an accident that Karamazov and Karakozov sound so similar, right? And one of the brothers, in fact, is called Dimitri Karamazov, and here we have Dimitri Karakozov. Um, There are also other pieces of evidence in notebooks, uh, uh, Dostoevsky's notebooks, that, for example, the character Kirillov, in um, in demons is is in part modeled on Karakozov. So there's a very real influence of this event on Dostoevsky's um, um, writing. But I would say more curiously is the fact that in fact Karakozov and Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment are such similar characters, and this is this this is a sort of historical coincidence, right? Because Dostoevsky had already sketched out Raskolnikov to a great extent before the Karakozov Act happened. So they are both um, the same age. They both are uh, provin- provincials who've come to the big city to study. They both um, studied, uh, were studying in the juridical faculties, and they are both um, dropouts. They both are walking around with um, great ideas about committing a great historical act. Um, and then on top of that, they both uh, suffer from kind of peculiar, you know, shall we say, um, uh, mental illnesses, and I don't mean that in a very clinical sense, but they, you know, they, they, um, 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 they, 
there there are some there's a, 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 a motif of illness that also filters into the very concept of the crime okay so <laughs> i think i'll stop there okay <laughs> okay um moving on to uh of shoots at the tsar and the way the legend goes is that a, a man by the name of osip ivanovich Kamasarov pushes Karakozov's hand out of the way and essentially saved the Tsar. And and one of the things you focus on is that after April 4th, an entire myth is created around Kamasarov. Um, tell us about this myth and, and what purpose did it serve in the post-April 4th climate? Yeah, this is really a fantastic story. Um, what we have to remember here is that Alexander II was known as the Tsar Liberator. So he was the Tsar who had abolished serfdom after, you know, a, I don't know, nearly, a, you know, a, 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 a century of, of talking about um, the fact that this was necessary but politically very complicated. So finally in 1861, um, the serfs had been liberated. So in a sense, Tsar Alexander II stood as the liberator of the people, right? Now, um, what was important about this, this myth surrounding Kamisarov was that Kamisarov was a, was a, a sort of a hat-making apprentice of, of peasant background. Now, in fact, um, as far as we know, he really did not save the Tsar from Karakozov's bullet. There was another reason why Karakozov missed, either simply because his, his, his pistol wasn't very good or because there was a yell in the crowd. But by all accounts, it was not because Kamisarov pushed Karakozov. Nevertheless, this was the story that was told. And so what happened was that there was, in, in, in a sense, that there was this this peasant or ex-peasant or young man of peasant background. Um, so a man of the people had now saved the czar who had, you know, himself five years earlier uh, liberated the people. So there was, there was something very um, symmetrical and pleasant about this myth. And so this guy um, over the course of the next week became an, an uh, 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 well, over the course of the next week, I mean, almost instantly, because we have to remember that this is a moment in Russian history when, um, the, the forces of, of modernization are really beginning to take root, right? So, so instantly, almost, this, this absolute nobody who, in fact, had done nothing um, becomes an imperial empire-wide hero, right? He's photographed at I don't know how many different pho- photography studios everywhere. People are buying um, uh, stories about what he had done and his photographs. They're carrying it around. He gets heaps of money. They, they give him a new job. <laughs> and, but the problem with this guy is that, you know, not only had he not done anything, he was also not a very remarkable um, uh, personage. So, in fact, and, and he was a drunkard. <laughs> Fame immediately gets to his head and he begins to behave in the most misbehave and <laughs> most incredible fashion to the point where about a year later, um, he's, it's become so uncomfortable, his behavior, that they essentially ship him out. <laughs> he ends up in the army. And the last thing we know about him is that uh, eventually, in a, in, a, in a drunken mood, he shoots at his wife and himself, and that's it. <laughs> but I think it's important to, um, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun story, and, there's a, and it was a fun chapter to write because there's a very natural narrative arc to this story. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I used it much more, um, or at least also to show, you know, how 
um, Russian society at this point um, uh, uh, sort of to use Kamisarov as one of the, the very early um, media sensations or celebrities or what kind of technology existed at this time, sort of the forces of modernity that could create this kind of an event, you know, both the, story, both the event that was Kamisarov and Karakozov, so to show that, you know, Karakozov really existed at a very particular um, uh, and, and sort of modern slash modernizing moment in mm-hmm. Russian history. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's important to kind of note, too, is that it's the rapidity in which his image or his myth circulates through Russian society, through the through photography, through uh, established media, um, much faster. I mean, one of the things you note in introduction is this collapse of space and time. Um, yeah. And I think that this is what gives Kamasarov's, the figure of him, such an important moment in, in, in first establishing Russian as a and modernity, and two, its connection to this one event. So it was. I, so, and I think that what's really important here too, the, the, the sort of the, the 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 temporality factor here, has to do with um, uh, sort of discursive ticks in the historiography, right, about terrorism, but also the revolutionary movement, and then more specifically about Karakozov himself. So the the real a real tendency in the literature is always to say that. You know, Russia was not yet modern. It was not yet ready for the revolution, basically, right? So, I mean, these accounts are written from a a um, pro-gradualist point of view, so to say, right? So anybody who resorts to revolutionary measures is, in fact, upsetting the natural course of history, right? And so what I think the Kamisarov chapter shows is, is that precisely what we have in Russia at this moment are many, many different historical rhythms competing with each other, so that, in fact, it's it's nearly impossible to tell a story that ultimately, where the moral, so to say, is, well, you know, it was too early for people to um, try to create a revolution. One of the things that you focus on in, in one of your chapters is the importance of um, Karkozov's dress, um, and what role does dress play in crafting the image of the terrorist? Well, let me first say that I think that dress... Um, and that's one of the points of this chapter. Dress plays a very important role in the activities of the terrorist, right? So if we think of the terrorist, um, and, and as I would say, um, emerges um, as a political figure at a certain stage in history, which is to say in, a, in, in, in modernity, right? And, um, and most of the time, at least originally, in an urban environment. So, um, and, um, and moves undercover, so to say, of the new urban crowd, right? So, in fact, the terrorist, and I mean, I think this, this we understand this sort of intuitively today, right? The terrorist has to um, um, use the camouflage of the crowd in order to be able to um, access his, his targets, right? And so, and I would argue that Karakozov is one of the first... Um, People to have uh, uh, to have done that in, in in Russian history, or or sort of to kind of invented that for terrorism. And the way that I came to this is that um, um, many of his uh, friends, but also newspaper accounts or witnesses who had seen, or actually no, many of his friends. Well, anyway, the point is simply that Karakozov to his contemporaries looked really weird. Okay, so <laughs> dressed in a costume that, in fact, 15 years later became 
a kind of cliched outfit for revolutionaries. So if we look, for example, at some of the paintings by Ilya Repin, Russia's most famous realist um, painter, and specifically this painting, The Arrest of the Propagandist, that's basically what Karakozov was dressed like. But that was 15 years later, right? At the time that Karakozov was wearing it, to um, to his friends in this student circle or at the university, you know, he walked around in what to them was a completely bizarre outfit, right? So part of the, the argument there is that he was wearing this, in fact, because he, he was already, you know, wearing a sort of camouflage where he had left the student environment behind and was now trying to integrate himself with the worker slash peasant slash commoners um, and to try to move among them in a in a in an uh, um, inconspicuous manner, right? So um, so so that's one thing. Um, but the other thing I think, and I hope I hope I can explain this uh, clearly, is that um, I think that for me there was a, a methodological issue involved here um, that has to do with you know. Uh, the, um, uh, the status of the exception or the odd or the weird, the strange, the uncanny in um, in history, right? So the, the title of the book as, as The Odd Man. And that is to say that, um, um, you know, methodologically in history, whenever we come up, up, upon something that, that stands out from its environment, um, it's an opportunity for us to... Um, sort of uncover the rule or the norm of society precisely by focusing on the exception, right? So, and I think that, um, so in that sense, the, the dress or the, the particular coat he was wearing, this armyak, and that's sort of a, a, a metaphor for the, for the, a, a, a larger methodological issue. Um, so I, I hope that made sense. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's to kind of to help clarify, essentially, it's the the odd figure or the disruption in the normal flow of things that that reflects back on normality. So, yeah. it, so to for us as historians to kind of notice the odd, it's a way to actually get a way to establish well, what is the normality. Right. Yeah, and exactly. I think you know there's parallels uh, um, in literature, but also I don't know in uh, uh, in uh, with Freud, right? I mean, like the the joke or the the the, the Freudian slip <laughs> that the that 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 reveals something um, um, beyond itself, and and also I think in in I mean when I say literature, I was thinking about crime and punishment um, um, when um, Raskolnikov is about to commit his crime. Um, he's walking around St. Petersburg and somebody yells at him, hey, you, or you're wearing a funny hat, you know, and then he realizes, my God, I'm, I'm, I stand out, I look peculiar, which means that I will be remembered, right? And, and, and if I am remembered, then I will be caught for this crime. But it's precisely these kind of weird little details or, or the odd or the exceptional that functions as a kind of a mnemonic trigger that can be very useful for historians to, uh, you know, try to recreate or reconstruct uh, particular um, historical contexts and environments. It's fascinating. Um, contemporaries and also historians have stated that Karakozov was just probably crazy. You know, yeah. He was disturbed. He got this idea. I mean, the, the kind of lone gunman theory who, you know, we, we, we hear all the time. It's quite common. Um, but you actually take a closer look at his various illnesses and, and, and its relationship to his his idea to assassinate 
uh, Alexander II. Now, what, what is the relationship between the two, his, the illnesses on the one hand and the idea of assassination on the other? Well, in one way, so, okay, there, there's, there's a couple answers to this. Um, the first is that, um, so Karagosov either was ill or at least he thought he was ill, right? I mean, we have his medical records and they are quite extensive. Um, <laughs> so he spent at least two months uh, in the, the, right before the assassination in a clinic. He had horrible fevers. He had a venereal disease. He was drinking too much. Um, he, he thought he had some, he thought he had a brain fever. <laughs> That's what it was called. Um, Stomach problems, problems in the spine. He was, um, he had lost his um, hearing in one ear. I mean, there really were some medical issues. And, um, you know, I mean, he said himself afterwards that he thought that um, he was dying and that he would die very soon. Um, and, I mean, you have to imagine here. Um, a, a young man who, who thought that he was working for the revolution, for the people, right, and was waiting, so again we have this temporal theme here, for the revolution to finally occur, but nothing was happening. And now um, it, he was dying, and in, his, in a very real sense, for him, time was running out. And, also, and, and so in that sense, it's, it's precisely because he's dying, and because he's dying anyway, right, that he thought he could sort of put himself... And, and and his his dying body in the service of the revolutionary movement. And so, so in a sense, he could take on the function of the kind of classical scapegoat, right? Um, and, and sacrifice himself for the revolutionary movement. Um, so that's, that's one way of reading it. The other thing, however, is if we look at his proclamation, um, which at the time... Um, nobody really read because it was confiscated and because he had not been very successful at distributing it, it, it must be said. He was not very effective. Um, but in this, um, in this proclamation, we, he provides a reading of Russian history where illness likewise plays a very um, big role so that Russia itself and the Russian people are described as being sick, right, and dying. And the government, and specifically the czars, are, are blamed for this illness of the people, right? So it's really, I mean, here, you know, it's difficult to know what's, the, you know, the chicken and the egg here, basically, right? Is it because Karakozov is sick that he is ascribing illness to the entirety of the Russian people? Um, or, you know, is it possible that there, there you know, there is a, or, or can we read it like this, that there is a, a, a long-standing tradition of thinking of the Russian people as ill and as dying. And if we add to this the fact that, you know, Karakozov was, you know, had a, had a lot of um, very real diseases that we would associate with particular urban um, um, environments at the time, right, that there is a, um, that, that it's, that it's, that that is what provokes a particular sort of political pathological reading of um, of the historical situation. So, but in anything, in any case, the two um, were very uh, closely intertwined and filter into his um, his reasons for assassinating the czar. Um, so, Karakozov is tried. Um, not publicly, which, of course, uh, you, if you could speak to that a bit, the fact that mm-hmm. the, the courts had been set up to have public trials, but, but the, the, the government backtracks on this in terms of Karakosov. And then he's hanged uh, on September 3rd, 1866. 
Um, several pre now our image of the revolutionary as, as crafted after um, this act is one of the revolutionaries are atheists, but yeah. several press accounts of of Karakozov's hanging point out him going through a number of religious rituals at the last moment. He crosses himself, he receives priest, a priest's blessing, he prays, there's accounts of him kneeling, etc. Mm -hmm. um, did uh, Karakozov undergo a kind of religious conversion in the final days of his life? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and if so, what was, what's the significance of this kind of, of his religious reconciliation? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, I mean, sort of the question, did he, did he undergo a religious conversion? Almost like, you know, was he sorry? Right. <laughs> right. In the end, did he regret having, having done this? Um, I, well, okay. The short answer is we don't really know. Right. I mean, so we have these various newspaper accounts that describe, um, uh, you know, what look like the components of religious ritual. Um, there are also some letters from Kakozov at the end um, where he addresses the czar and says, um, he says to the czar, you know, I ask your forgiveness as a, uh, both as a man and as a Christian, right? So, I mean, and, and we know that prior to, I mean, we also have from his testimonies um, um, some evidence that prior to the act, he did think of himself as an atheist, right? So on the one hand, we would say, okay, that looks like he really underwent a conversion. The problem with that story is that um, Karakozov had a very complicated and almost intimate relationship with a, with a, with a, with a priest while he was um, um, after he'd been arrested in a, in a, in a, in a complicated um, um, uh, dialogue emerged between the two of them. And I would say that this priest, you know, who is arguably closer to Karakozov or, you know, to knowing about the, the state of Karakozov's soul, if we want to call it soul, um, this priest, in fact, was absolutely unsure whether Karakozov had or had not undergone um, a religious conversion. Um, but I think so. And so, so, so in the end, you know, I mean, I guess <laughs> we don't know is the answer there. Um, and um, but what, as far as the the significance of it uh, goes, yeah, I do. I do think that. I mean, I sort of said that in a in a, in a flippant way, but I do think it has to do with um, was he sorry? You know, did he did he maintain his revolutionaries um, convictions until the very end? Now it's too easy. Um, to make it to, to say, for example, um, in the Russian context, uh, you were either a revolutionary socialist slash atheist, or you are religious, and therefore, you know, you are a traitor to the revolution. Um, it's it's more complicated than that, especially because there, you know, in the later century, uh, part of the century, and also in the early 20th century, of a number of very committed revolutionaries and terrorists who thought of themselves as deeply devoted Christians. You know, not in the traditional sense, and certainly they did not um, favor the Orthodox Church, but they definitely thought of themselves as 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 Christians. They believe in Christ. They see themselves as working in 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 Christ's tradition. They, you know, oftentimes saw Christ as a kind of proto-socialist, right? So, so the, the dichotomy is, is, is too simple. Nevertheless, there is a kind of sense that when a revolutionary at the very last moment embraces, you know, religion, that, and, and this is particularly true because of the role that the Orthodox Church played in Russian history, you know, known as the sort of the handmaiden of the state, that there is a kind of betrayal of the revolutionary ideal that has happened, right? 
So, so, so that's the significance. Now, like I said, in Karakozov's case, you know, um, we don't really know. <laughs> right, right. And there, but there's also this other moment that you mentioned where he makes a distinction between the Tsar as, I mean, the, the king's two bodies, right? Yes. The, the Tsar as an individual person and the Tsar as the representation of the, the government. And, yes. and his act is, is about destroying the latter rather yes. than the former. Yes. Um, yes. So I, I think it might even to think about this this kind of religious moment, whether he's sorry or not, um, perhaps is within that kind of context, that distinction that he makes. Well, and yeah, and I think that that uh, I see what you mean. Okay, that's interesting. So that that basically um, for him, the religious dimension has almost been privatized in that sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, and this is what I also think is 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 important for the emergence of the theory of terrorism. Right. That precisely that that Karakozov does not target Alexander II because he personally did something bad for which he has to be held accountable. This is this is this is much more a motif that emerges with um, the People's Will, Narodnya Volya, the terrorist group that emerges 15 years later. Um, they repeatedly um, target officials who in their eyes have committed particular grievances, right? Um, that's not what Karakozov is, is, is about. He really targets the czar as a, as, a, uh, as, a, as a representative of the system, so he's targeting the system. But I think you're right that, 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 this, um, that religion at that point for Karakozov has nothing to do with it, right? So the, the religious and the political, yeah, yeah I think that's right, are, are, are separate there. And and the trial, I mean, and the reason why I mentioned the trial is because one, um, it, it's it, the state of the exception, um, mm-hmm. you know, from from Carl Schmidt to uh, Giorgio Agamben, this idea that the, the act of terrorism or an act of political violence completely disrupts the normal functioning of the state. Um, mm-hmm. So what role does the trial, Karakozov's trial, or the problem of having to try Karakozov uh, play in that, in disrupting that normality? Um, what, what role does trial play? Um, right, in the sense of they, he, they, they just passed reforms, right. opening up the Russian courts. And by law, Karakozov w- was supposed to be publicly, publicly tried. But yeah. they, they at the, not the lab, pretty much it seems like the last minute, they decide to do a closed trial away yeah. from the public. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about, essentially talk about the trial and, and, and why do you think that they make this move? They go back on the reforms. Okay, right. Well, the reforms, you know, they had, they're officially they're inaugurated in 1864, but not really until 1866. So it's, it's almost at the precise moment that the new judicial um, uh, system is 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 implemented at that very moment. Karakozov shoots at the czar, um, and so instantly challenges um, the 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 new legal norm, right? And and yes, I mean basically, I mean the 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 government, I, I mean almost in a classical fashion, <laughs> responds to this exception by immediately suspending all these new laws, not all of them, you know, and, and you could say, um, well, you know, they, they didn't ha- they had not had a lot, of, in fact, they hadn't had any practice with the new system at all, right? So the Karakozov case is a, is a, is a pretty, or the, the, the way that the, the case was um, handled is a pretty bizarre mixture of old and new forms. Um, but, but certainly, I mean, I, I think that um, in the historiography, the judicial reform has seen has been seen mostly as the most successful reform of, of all the great reforms. 
Um, I think if we look at that from the point of view of the revolutionary movement, you know, that's just not a tenable uh, position, right? Because most of the time, when there was a political challenge to the autocracy, um, the, the, the state responded precisely, you know, with a, a, a suspension of the norm, you know, of course, or, you know, ostensibly in order to secure the further existence of the norm in the community. But, um, but um, um, so with Caracoso, for example, right, no jury trial, um, um, no, uh, no public, um, uh, no, no transparency, right? Um, the, the defense lawyers, and there were some defense lawyers, some of them um, were given materials to, de- to, de- to defend their clients, I think, you know, two days before the trial started. I mean, and you have to imagine there are thousands of pieces of, of, of evidence for this case. So, of course, it was impossible to make any kind of a real um, defense. Um, and I think, and this is something that continues, you know, with uh, the, in the further history of the revolutionary movement, that most of the time, um, when in fact there should have been um, a, a public trial, um, that revolutionaries were very quickly hauled before military tribunals, um, tried and then executed, right, out of public sight. Um, and, and in a sense, too, in the history of terrorism in general, right, in, not yeah. just in Russia, but I mean, even in our own society, too, that the terrorist act has this ability to completely disrupt. So you have to create, you know, a, a separate structure to deal with them because their their act is so heinous and so unthinkable that it can't be – the normal judicial process just can't be applied to them. Well, yeah, that's the argument, right, whereas in fact um, um, it, it's unclear. I mean it, it, it's because thereby – uh, precisely by the doubling of the structure or by by suspending the the, the normal structure, you perpetuate the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And already at the time, so people like Dostoevsky, for example, right? I mean, Dostoevsky politically is a very complicated person. At this time, you know, uh, you know, he probably would have, you know, declared himself a conservative and a, and, a, and an orthodox. But he's he's you know he's a, he's a, you know he's a smart guy, so right. so you can't really pin him down. And he holds some very liberal, what we would say, liberal opinions about how this case should have been handled, right? And he says that you know it's 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 they should not have done all this behind closed doors because this all this does is to increase the mystique and to make it more of an enigma right whereas rather if we if 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 the case had been open to the public and if people would have been able to see what motivated these young people what their hopes and and dreams were you know um how 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 undeveloped or sort of childish some of their ideas are that it would have dispelled the problem and it would have created an opportunity for public discourse right and therefore potentially for political progress and i think you know i think that 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 same argument um you know probably still holds today Mm -hmm. yeah and it also too by by kind of taking his one act a failure on top of that and closing it behind the structures of the state and, and, and preventing it from going out to the public, it really shows a weakness on the part of the state that yeah. this one act can completely disrupt its normal functioning is, is one of the things I think the power of, of terrorism as a, as a modern political act. Yeah, and I think, and the other thing is that, you know, it was precisely because they closed the entire case to the public, and then they, it was the, you know, the state and the court, as I said earlier on, that promoted a very particular image of of what had happened, right? So essentially, this idea of this, you know, suicide assassin cell called hell. And so, I mean, essentially, a a kind of a scary image of, 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 
of, of this political movement. But this image really takes flight and spoke to the imagination of people. And it became bigger and bigger, right, as a myth. And then, of course, it began to inspire and motivate more uh, uh, young people and potential revolutionaries, right? And it begins to take on its a life of its own. And people then begin to imitate it. So it becomes real, in fact. Right. <laughs> originally, it probably was not, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in any case, it was certainly not such a not such a rigid phenomenon, and it, it could have still uh, moved in many different directions. And I think that also is decidedly, um, um, you know, uh, something to think about for today, probably. Thank you for your time. It's a fascinating book, and, and, and it's certainly a fascinating interview. Um, so what are you working on now? What does the future hold? Okay. So I'm working on a, a, a number of things. First, I'm, I'm still working on terrorism, um, but in a, in a slightly different uh, direction and also not so much uh, focused on a singular subject. So one aspect I've become very interested in, or this is actually a, a dimension that's present throughout the book, but I, I think right now I'm sort of trying to untangle it um, um, on a, a bit more abstract level, and that is the, the temporality of terrorism. Um, so... Um, how terrorists conceive of history and historical time and how they understand their acts of political violence to um, uh, as a as a as a well, i don't want to say tool but um, how they uh, as a way of um, affecting or altering or um, uh, disrupting um, the the uh, uh, his, uh, history right and the way history moves so that's one thing and then and then another thing um, is um um, an essay that I'm working on right now, which reads terrorism as a political modernism. So what I'm trying to do is to place side by side terrorism and the various aesthetic modernisms that emerge um, at the same time. Right. So I think, in fact, that that to in order to understand terrorism and what its emergence is all about, it's probably for me it's become the most effective way of, of thinking about it is to think of it alongside um, aesthetic modernisms and, and, and the avant-garde, not just in a Russian context, but in a pan-European context. Um, so those are two shorter things that I'm thinking about. And then um, most recently, I've sort of started to think, you know, uh, more immodestly <laughs> about writing um, a small book on the um, the, 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 the a, a theory of terrorism, and I, I sort of conceive of this as a like a little um, companion piece um, to um, the theory of the partisan by Carl Schmitt. But like I said, that's a, a much more immodest project, and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> okay, great. Well, it sounds wonderful. I look forward to it. Um, well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and um, I encourage everybody to read um, The Odd Man Karakozov. Thanks. Thank you. We've been speaking with Professor Claudia Verhoeven about her book, The Odd Man Karakozov, Imperial Russia, Modernity, and the Birth of Terrorism. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russia and Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next week when New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies talks to Miriam Dobson about her new book, Khrushchev's Cold Summer, Gulag Returnees, Crime, and Fatal Reform After Stalin. Until then, goodbye. Денег все не соберем, 